Today is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a coin talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener coin format enables us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, www.prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on www.prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Judge Ruse, holy artificial intelligence created art can't get copyright protections. Authorship is a big sticking point when it comes to artificial intelligence, and the involvement of real humans is keeping AI made creations from being granted copyright protection. For those in the entertainment industry and creative fields, more generally, AI has been an extremely divisive topic, as various websites like ArtStation have decided to basically let art created by the controversial technology persist on their platforms, either freely or with specific guidelines. Hollywood writers and actors are striking in part because they fear how studios could easily use the technology as a way to avoid paying them. Fortunately, intellectual property law is here to say that copyrights will continue to only apply to human-made works. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell reaffirmed that sentiment with her ruling, stating human authorship is a bedrock requirement for anything seeking a copyright. The declaration was made in regards to Stephens. Thales bid to have the government begin allowing copyright protections for AI-made works. Thaler, who serves as chief engineer of the neural network firm Imagination Engines, have been trying to push for protecting AI creation since 2018. At the time of his original application, the Copyright Office turned it down, saying the nexus between the human mind and creative expression was a key factor in a work being protected. Howell, in this most recent ruling, reaffirmed that U.S. copyright law protects only works of human creation. Further, she stated that creations made by non-human actors, such as AI, need no incentivization with a promise of exclusive rights under United States law, and copyright was therefore not designed to reach them. While she acknowledged that the copyright is meant to adapt with the times, she argued that anything seeking protection is required to have 
an originator with a capacity for intellectual, creative, or artistic labor. Must that originator be a human being to claim copyright protection? The answer is yes. Hollywood studios have been gradually making steps towards bringing AI into their productions, and it's likely they'll continue to do so by having enough humans involved so the work technically qualifies as being authored by real people. The larger issue of AI's use in creative fields hasn't been resolved here, and given that artists are currently pursuing legal action about having their art being used to train AI, it'll be a while before there's any kind of resolution in sight. Is cord cutting losing its appeal as streaming becomes more expensive than cable? The short answer is no. The Financial Times recently published that cord cutting has run out of steam. They compared the most expensive streaming service to the average cost for a cable TV subscription as they are now about equivalent costs. They omitted the additional cost for a monthly rental of a set-top box for the cable TV subscriber. They're comparing a most expensive streaming service to an average cost of a cable TV subscription. In New York State, this includes a 2.35% utility tax, an 8.85% general corporation tax, and a 4% unincorporated business tax, cable television franchise fees. Municipalities may impose fees of up to 5% of gross revenues derived from the operation of cable television systems. So as you can see, they were not doing an apples-apples comparison on cost. Like everything else in these economically challenging times, streaming is becoming more expensive, and with so many companies raising their prices, subscribing to YouTube TV, the most expensive premium services, can cost $87 as for, while the average cable TV package costs $83 per month. It begs the question, is the era of cheap streaming services and cost-cutting over? As I said before, no. There are over 85 channels available in the basic YouTube TV package, including more than 15 sports channels, more than 15 news channels, more than 10 family channels, and even local networks. Premium channels can also be added for an additional fee. The exact number of channels may vary by region, and the service occasionally adds and removes stations. Disney announced last week that it will introduce price increases across all of its ad-free services and packages, including a 27% hike for Disney Plus and a 20% jump for Hulu. It marks the second time in 12 months that Disney has confirmed price rises. It also means that the service now costs double the $6.99 it started with back in 2019. The Financial Times writes that as of four, the $87 per month price to subscribe to the top U.S. streaming service is $14 more than it was one year earlier at $73. However, it should be noted that there are free TV streaming channels. PlutoTV.com, over 250 free TV channels. Back in 2020, when the streaming industry was one of those areas being boosted by the pandemic, it was estimated that 31.2 million households would cut the cord by the end of the year, and that by the end of 2024, fewer than half of U.S. households will subscribe to a traditional pay TV service. 
This happened with just the first quarter of this year. One of the main factors prompting cord cutters was the high prices, especially when compared to the then much cheaper streaming options. Another reason people used to cut the cord in favor of streaming was commercials. But companies such as Netflix and Disney now offer ad-supported tiers for lower prices. Disney's version has 3.3 million subscribers and about 40% of its new subscribers opt for this plan. Password sharing, once a big benefit of streaming, is also being killed off. Netflix already charges those who share their login credentials extra, while Disney said it would be doing the same, likely starting next year. One thing that streaming still has over traditional TV is that customers can pick and choose which services they prefer and easily pause their subscriptions. Many people cancel and then resubscribe when their favorite TV series begins a new season. It will be interesting to see if customers start abandoning streaming services as prices continue to rise. Disney CEO Bob Iger claimed the number of people who canceled their subscriptions last time prices went up was insignificant. But Disney could lose a lot more people once its plans become more expensive on October the 12th. Let's just say the headline news by the Financial Times using incongruent data is misleading journalism. As people are cord-cutting to cut down on their TV subscription expense, Charter has announced that they will be increasing broadcast TV fee. Why does it need a broadcast TV fee? Some subscribers to Charter Spectrum TV Internet Services this month are seeing various price increases in their bills, from a $5 a month bump for certain internet plans to a $5 a month hike for bundle phone service to yet another $1 increase in the broadcast TV fee. The company just increased the broadcast TV fee by $1 a month last January. Why is Charter raising broadcast TV fee again? It's already more than $20 a month. And what exactly is a broadcast TV fee, and why do cable operators include it with their service? While cable ops feel it's necessary, how they could better communicate its needs to its customers. The evolution of cable TV and programming costs. To understand the rationale behind broadcast surcharge fees, it's essential to comprehend the evolution of the cable TV industry and the complex landscape of programming expense. Cable TV operators play a significant role in delivering a wide range of channels to viewers, offering access to news, sports, entertainment, and educational content. To provide this diverse programming, operators must negotiate contracts with various content providers, including networks and broadcasters. Over the years, these negotiations have become increasingly intricate due to the facts such as rising production costs, contractual obligations, and market competition. As networks demand higher fees for the distribution of their content, cable TV operators face mounting pressure to secure these programming agreements while maintaining reasonable subscription costs for their customers. The broadcast surcharge fees, as they are explained. Broadcast surcharge fees, often presented as separate line item on cable bills, 
have emerged as a result of these escalating programming costs. Ostensibly, covers the expenses associated with retransmitting local broadcast station signals through cable systems. In essence, it's an additional charge passed on to consumers to offset the fees cable TV operators incur from networks for the right to carry their content. Local broadcast stations, which offer a mix of news, sports, and entertainment content, hold a unique position in the cable TV ecosystem. They're generally available for free over the air to anyone with an antenna. But cable TV operators pay fees to include these stations in their channel lineups. This practice, known as retransmission consent, allows cable operators to offer a convenient way for viewers to access local content, but it also comes at a cost. There are several factors that contribute to the imposition of broadcast surcharge fees. There's network negotiations, as mentioned earlier. Negotiations with content providers can be intense and result in hefty fees. Networks leverage the popularity of their shows and events to demand higher compensation from cable operators. Then they have contractual obligations. Cable TV operators often enter into long-term agreements with networks to secure content distribution rights. If the network raises its fees during the contract term, the operators may have limited options other than to accept the increase or drop the channel from their lineup. And then there's infrastructure expense. Maintaining the infrastructure required to retransmit broadcast signals involves equipment maintenance, upgrades, and operational costs. Broadcast surcharge fees may help cover some of these expenses. Then you also have regional variability. The fees networks charge can vary by region due to factors like market size, viewership demographics, and local economic conditions. Cable operators may pass on these regional discrepancies through surcharge fees. And then there's transparency and consumer awareness. While broadcast surcharge fees are justified by the mounting expenses associated with cable TV programming, critics argue that these charges can be confusing and lack transparency. Consumers often find themselves grappling with bills that feature numerous add-on charges, making it difficult to discern the actual cost of their subscription. To address these concerns, cable TV operators must prioritize transparency by clearly explaining the purpose of each fee on their bills and providing easy-to-understand breakdowns of costs. This would empower consumers to make informed decisions about their entertainment choices and encourage cable operators to engage in fair pricing practices. Cost of streaming services is open-ended. With streaming services across the board raising their prices, you need to review what you want out of these subscriptions and what you're actually getting for your money. Everyone's long-standing concerns about streaming space being a bubble on the verge of popping have proven to be more than warranted over the past few months as two of Hollywood's ongoing labor strikes have raged on. But with the most recent round of services like Disney+, Plus, Hulu, Peacock, and Paramount+, Plus raising their prices, during Hollywood's ongoing double labor strike, no less to meet the demand of shareholders for never-ending profits, the time has come for all of us to seriously rethink 
our relationships with the platforms that have become the new cable. Streamers all offer various services at different expense tiers. The fact is that the entertainment companies behind them want more people spending more money to access their libraries is undeniable and something worth thinking about more deeply, especially as part of conversations about how traditional cable stacks up against the competition. The big streaming services are now charging their subscribers more than ever because it's increasingly difficult to draw in new customers and because the mere perception of growth is no longer enough to keep their shareholders happy. Even though the streamers love being seen and celebrated as pop cultural tastemakers, Netflix, like its competition, is a company in the business of making money that owes much of its success to the way consumers have bought into the idea of it being absolutely necessary to keep up with every single new film or show that hits the internet. That facet of the streaming wars, the way shows like Stranger Things, The Mandalorian, WandaVision, and The Boys became subscription drivers and pop cultural phenomena so big that you couldn't really avoid hearing about them, is one of the most difficult things for these companies to engineer because of how contingent it is on people's taste. To make things even trickier, the success of those streaming hits and others like them was undoubtedly influenced by the degree to which viewers were regularly flocking to social media platforms to discuss them. The idea that people should always be on the lookout for the next big streaming show or original movie for fear of missing out on the hype cycle is something that many of us who subscribe to multiple streamers have bought into. As all of the streamers continue to become increasingly and perhaps prohibitively expensive, the option to just unsubscribe is always available and not nearly the difficult choice people might think it is. How important it is now for consumers to make decisions about which services they're willing to spend money on and what they really want out of them. In an ideal world, you'll be able to bundle all the services to share with all the people you want for a reasonable price that would ultimately help finance future waves of excellent programming to keep you coming back for more. But we live here in the real world, where the prices will continue to rise until shareholder morale improves or until the streamers start to seeing the endless hikes actively drive more subscribers away at an uncontrollable clip. YouTube TV is reported the only live TV provider to add subscribers in the second quarter of this year. Cable TV or streaming. Cord cutting is growing faster than ever as the number of Americans paying for cable TV has dropped to its lowest level since the early 1990s. Now the second quarter of 2023 has not been nice to live TV companies as the Lickman Research Group reports that over 1.7 million Americans canceled live TV in just three months. Now it's not just cable TV companies losing TV customers. Live TV streaming services like Hulu, Fubo, and Sling TV have all reported losing subscribers. This comes as increasingly cord cutters are switching to on-demand-only services and are happily not watching shows live. According to the Lickman Research Group, only one live TV service added was YouTube TV, as it reportedly grew by 200,000 subscribers in the second quarter of 2023. 
This comes as YouTube TV has recently become the new home of the NFL Sunday ticket, helping it attract subscribers. YouTube TV has also started a massive advertising push related to NFL Sunday ticket that has likely helped it attract new subscribers. Traditional TV providers have been losing subscribers recently, including DirecTV, reportedly losing 400,000, according to the Lickman Research Group. Other cable TV losses include Comcast, losing over 540,000, Spectrum losing over 190,000, Dish losing almost 300,000, Verizon losing almost 70,000, and Altice USA losing over 68,000. The total of this is about 1.2 million lost subscribers in just three months for the five largest TV companies. Live TV streaming services have also been losing subscribers, including Hulu plus Live TV, losing 100,000 subscribers, Sling TV losing 97,000, and Fubo losing 118,000 subscribers during the second quarter of 2023. YouTube TV was reportedly also the only live TV service that adds subscribers in the first quarter of 2023. Increasing a growing number of cord cutters are ditching cable TV, but not replacing it with live TV streaming service. Just a few years ago, many cable executives expected to see most cord cutters replace cable TV with similar live TV streaming services. Now, though, most cord cutters have opted for cheaper on-demand-only options versus more expensive live TV services like Sling TV and Fubo. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I give you insight into IT, the workplace, and yes, sometimes information technology professionals in the workplace. Last week, I covered the downsides to working in IT. This week, as promised, I'm covering the upsides, and sometimes there's a lot to this. I didn't want to leave you feeling like I'm this depressed individual that's just looking to get out of IT, because I'm not. I'm going to weave a tapestry in front of you that might also lure you in. So I want you to step into the digital realm. I want you to think about where code and algorithms dance like digital ballerinas and innovation reigns supreme. Welcome to the captivating world of information technology, where possibilities are actually endless and rewards are, are vast. Maybe not always as much as you might expect, but they are huge. If you are considering a career in IT or you're already part of this dynamic industry, I do want you to think about all of that benefit that's sitting before you. So, first up, you get to unleash your inner Sherlock Holmes. Every day brings a thrilling mystery waiting to be unraveled. As an IT professional, you get to hone and sharpen those detective skills. You're delving into complex problems. You're frequently emerging triumphant with solutions that you did not picture ahead of time. Now, there are 
portions of IT jobs, which may not bring as much of this. But I've found over the course of my career, I have at times been the Sherlock Holmes of that digital realm where I was restoring order to the chaos. It's a problem-solving extravaganza that will leave you just feeling like you're, you're, you're smart, you're powerful, you're... You're just like the the detective on Law and Order, Blue Buds, or whatever it is you're watching on television. You will be, as an IT professional, also navigating an ever-changing technological landscape. Think of Lewis and Clark. Just think about roving around and just discovering so much. The world of IT moves at the speed of light. Technology evolves faster than the latest smartphones hit the market. And as an IT professional, you're at the forefront of an exhilarating race. Embrace the adrenaline. Embrace that rush as you learn and adapt to the latest of trends and tools and programming languages. It can be a fun, exhilarating, thrilling roller coaster ride. Hopefully not too scary, but it's it's like a, a walk in the wilderness along one of the trails blazed before you, or sometimes you're blazing your own trail. And then there's the power of innovation. And at times you feel like you're working next to Thomas Edison. IT work gives you a front row seat to witness the birth of groundbreaking inventions and disruptive innovations. You'll be part of a dynamic community that dreams big and turns those dreams into reality. 3D printing, 3D glasses. Well, maybe not so much of the 3D glasses, but you get the idea. Even in your own world, you might sometimes think of yourself as a modern-day Thomas Edison where you're lighting up the world with your own creative solutions. Whether you're developing new software or revolutionary gadgets, in IT, you become an agent of change, leaving your mark on the world with each stroke of your digital pen. My experiences expanded my horizons as well. In the world of IT, borders are simple lines on a map. As technology connects us, the internet brings us closer together. You'll find yourself working on projects with teams from around the world. The digital globe is your playground and you have the opportunity to collaborate and learn from individuals from diverse diverse cultures and and backgrounds and you get to interact with them on all kinds of personal levels because you have to know who you're working with it becomes a melting pot of ideas where different perspectives merge to create extraordinary things It's almost a little bit like an international diplomat. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the money aspect, but money isn't everything. Working in IT does open doors for some into lucrative opportunities. And as the digital world expands, 
the demand is going to continue to soar. Whoever you're working for, a tech giant, a startup with big dreams, or as a freelance, it, it doesn't matter. The possibilities for financial growth are better than most industries. Now, last week, I did cover the downsides, and some of them may leave you realizing that it's not as great a fit as what I just described here. I've met a number of people in my career who went into IT or even stumbled into it, but then realized it wasn't for them. Before you take today's information as a selling point, as an impetus for your journey into IT, I want you to go back to last week's segment on this very topic. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. SanDisk Western Digital Data Loss Disaster. Are you using an external SSD made by SanDisk or Western Digital? You could be sitting on a ticking data loss time bomb. Back in May, several outlets reported about failing SanDisk extreme solid-state drives. Subsequently, replacement drives provided by Western Digital, SanDisk parent company, were also reported to be failing. Western Digital then released a firmware update to address the issue. There was no mention of what users who had lost data should do, and it's unclear if this update fixed the issue. Now things have escalated to the point where Western Digital is facing a lawsuit over its storage drives, which accuses the company of knowingly selling defective SSDs. The complaint says the company engaged in a scheme to mislead consumers about the extent of the problem and claims that they continue to be defective after the firmware update, according to reports from individuals who installed this fix. The lawsuit says that Western Digital may be selling these defective drives at steep discounts to get them out of inventory. The lawsuit is seeking class action status and is looking for damages and legal fees. What SSDs are affected? According to Western Digital's firmware update page, the impacted products are the models as follows. SanDisk Extreme Portable 4TB SDSSDE61-4T00 Extreme Pro Portable 4TB SDSSDE81-4T00 Extreme Portable 2TB SDSSDE81-2T00 SanDisk Extreme Pro Portable 1TB SDS-SDE81-1T00 and Western Digital My Passport 4TB WDBAGF0040BGY. I'll have the webmaster list this on my website, pcradioshow.org, for the exact models and numbers. According to reports from affected users, the issue appears to be limited to drives manufactured after November 2022, although there is no official confirmation of that. The drives appear to hit a problem once they are around half full, at which point they will start throwing up read and write errors. The drive then show up as unformatted, and reformatting doesn't fix the issue. Is the data gone? Unfortunately, yes. There's nothing that the end user can do to recover it. Stop using it immediately. Copy the data from it onto another drive as soon as possible 
and do not use the drive anymore. Ultra Wideband, that's UWB, could be coming to Chromebooks. Ultra Wideband have been found in Chromium Garrett, an open source web-based code collaboration tool where developers can review modifications on source code. It appears that Google is currently testing the technology on Chromebooks. Ultra Wideband is a radio technology that can use very low energy level for short range high bandwidth communications over a large portion of the radio spectrum. UWB has traditional applications in non-cooperative radar imaging. Most recent applications target sensor data collection, precise locating, and tracking, and UWB supports started to appear in high-end smartphones in 2019. Ultra-wideband for localized devices is a technology that is just starting to really get its legs. From unlocking car doors to secure wireless payments, indoor location tracking to smart home accessory applications, and UWB is the sort of thing that could eventually replace many technologies we use today, like Bluetooth, NFC, which is near field communication, and RFID, which is radio frequency identification. The data transfer speeds via these millimeter waves is very high, starting around 4 megabits per second, reaching a peak of 1 gigabits per second. Add in the fact that UWB can also detect precise location, and you can see that the potential for applications across a wide range of devices is 100% possible. UWB is a short-range wireless communications protocol that, like Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, uses radio waves, but it differs substantially in that it operates at a very high frequency. As its name denotes, it also uses a wide spectrum of several gigahertz. One way to think of it is as a radar that continuously scan an entire room and precisely lock onto an object like a laser beam to discover its location and communicate data. Today, its primary purpose is expected to be location discovery and device ranging. While both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth have been modified to allow greater accuracy in locating other devices and connecting to them, UWB is natively more precise, uses less power, and, as production of UWB chips ramps up over time, holds the promise of a lower price point. Little more than a test at the moment, Google looks to be prepping UWB tech for Chromebooks. Where we are right now, it could be a while before the first device appears with UWB in tow. But it's super exciting to see it at least starting. The applications could be far more widespread with the possibilities for connections with peripherals like phones, watches, or even something like earbuds down the line. With this sort of technology, even things as complex as wireless extended displays could 100% be within the realm of reality. The less things to plug in, the better. And for now, however, it seems Google is testing out a few specific use cases. Chromebook to Chromebook, Chromebook to phone, and versions of those pairings with multiple pairs instead of a simple one-to-one -one communications. UWB could change the way we interact with our gadgets, 
Imagine the extended display functionality. With UWB, a shared device could be in the room with multiple users and be accessible to everyone at high speeds with no need for any cables. Or imagine the new Android app streaming feature that just launched on Chromebooks. With 1 gigabits per second speeds, you can mirror any app you want with crystal clear animation and zero lag. As it evolves, Chrome OS getting in on what could be a massive shift in the tech landscape over the next few years. How much ink does it take to scan a document? How much ink does an all-in-one printer need in order to fax a document? Or to scan one to your computer? The obvious answer is none. But if you own certain printers from companies like HP and Canon, you won't be able to use core features unless the device has ink, even if those features have nothing to do with ink. Unfortunately, all-in-one printers arbitrarily demanding ink to perform non-printing functions is not a new frustration, and that's despite some companies having printers that can scan without ink. Clearly, scanning or faxing without requiring an ink cartridge would improve users' experience, and they've illustrated that through class actions lawsuits. But this hasn't stopped printer makers from fighting to keep the practice. Since mid-2022, HP has been fighting a class action lawsuit alleging that certain all-in-one printer models won't scan or fax without ink, and that HP doesn't properly disclose this to shoppers. They should before the shopper buys it. On January the 13th of this year, the complaint was dismissed, but allowed to be amended. A Northern District of California judge dismissed HP's motion to dismiss the amendment complaint. HP Envy 6455E and HP DeskJet 2655 purchases, Gary Freund and Wayne McMath filed the complaint, which states that HP printers are designed to enter an error state when low or out of ink, preventing usage until the installment of a new ink cartridge. The plaintiffs also say that HP marketing and advertising doesn't clearly disclose this. The complaint also notes that an HP support agent had said that HP printers are designed in such a way that with the empty cartridge or without cartridge, the printer will not function. HP's all-in-one printers do not work as advertised. Ink is not a necessary component to scan or to fax a document. The complaint further adds, tying the scan or fax capabilities of the all-in-one printers to ink contained in the devices offer no benefit and only serve to disadvantage and harm consumers financially. However, tying the scan of or fax capabilities of the all-in-one printers to ink contained in the devices does, however, serve to benefit HP. Anyone who owns an inkjet printer knows how expensive ink can be. That suggests a reason to push people to buy ink through tactics like blocking core features if no ink is present and reportedly selling printers below cost. Ink buying programs have also become cash cows. HP in 2021, for example, said its instant ink subscription business was worth half a billion dollars. In its second quarter 2023 financial report, HP named Instant Ink 
a key growth area. The complaint against HP says, indeed, HP designed its all-in-one printer product so they will not work without ink. Yet HP does not disclose this fact to consumers. Even were it technically possible to scan a document without all ink cartridges present, HP does not disclose any workaround to consumers in any of the product packaging nor in any of HP's advertising and marketing materials regarding its multifunction devices. The complaint seeks monetary damages as well as the end of HP's misleading advertising and marketing campaign and for HP to engage in a corrective campaign to inform consumers of the misleading advertising. Of course, HP declined to comment on this at all. Canon's doing it too. HP isn't the only company demanding ink for scans and faxes. It's not even the only one that has faced litigation over it. Canon, back in March, settled a class action lawsuit stating that Canon all-in-one printers can't scan or fax with low or empty ink cartridges and its advertising claims are false, misleading, and reasonably likely to deceive the public. The settlement terms weren't disclosed, and Canon did not respond to any request for comment. Similarly to the HP situation, the representatives on Canon's support forum allegedly confirmed that certain all-in-one printer models require all ink tanks installed, and they must all contain ink in order to use the functions of the printer, and that there's no workaround for this. However, the posts that are linked to in the complaint as of November the 22nd, 2022, have a comment from a moderator saying, it's possible to scan with an empty ink tank or cartridge. The support page provides instructions for disabling the function that detects ink levels. Canon did not explain why its printers ever required ink to scan in the first place, but the company has at least agreed to instruct users on disabling the ink requirement, which is better than where HP is currently. Semantics prioritize over customers. As of this writing, HP doesn't seem to be working toward enabling its printers to scan and fax without ink. When trying to get the complaint dismissed, HP claimed that support agents who said printers are designed to not scan without ink don't represent HP and were not referring to printer models owned by the complaint's plaintiffs. The printer industry has long had an issue with customer trust. HP, for instance, has bricked third-party ink and issue other problematic printer firmware updates, along with the company's controversial HP Plus program and region-locked printers. HP has already paid settlements for abruptly bricking third-party ink via its dynamic security feature. It's noticed that HP at least changed its language for the NV6455E's Amazon product page to say you can print, scan, and copy from your phone from whenever, wherever to print, scan, and copy from your phone from anywhere. Such semantic games feel more like HP seeking a loophole than trying to please customers. Such corporation-first tactics may be why Epson thinks it's dunking on competitors with its own support page dedicated to this topic. It reads, Since 2008, all Epson printers will scan even when there is little or no usable ink left in the cartridge. I have an Epson on one, and I can verify that. But as is often the case with printers, 
A sneaky little caveat could abruptly ruin your day, as the support page also states, however, all the genuine Epson cartridges must be installed in the printer, even if depleted of usable ink, and the printer displays the replace cartridge message. So you still need an Epson ink cartridge to scan. If you happen to have tossed your ink cartridge when it became useless, your all-in-one printer could be virtually useless too. It's alarming that printer makers know customers feel swindled and confused, but won't eliminate the problematic design. Printer vendors have become too bold in expecting customers to accept wordplay, settlements, and confusing support responses. Class action lawsuits may light a fire under these companies, but it shouldn't be up to disgruntled customers to complain to support agents, lawyers, and judges. If printer companies can't deliver a reliable, easy experience, customers will have no choice but to consider alternatives. And that I have. I have not had this problem with all-in-one printers with Brothers products. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, we've spent a number of weeks talking about a number of products that were good. But one of the things that I long for, I, I love to hear some of the some of the horror stories. Your wish is granted. Okay. All right. <laughs> what do we have? Uh, this is a tankless water heater. The theory isn't bad, but buyer beware on this specific one. And let me spell out the math. Okay. This is from Rheem. That's R-H-E-E-M. Rheem's EcoSmart ba- uh, brand. And, and, or, yeah, it's a sub-brand. I like Rheem. I bought their natural gas-fueled condensing tankless outdoor water heater here. Mm-hmm. But this model, the Ecos 12, I don't like. It's compact and might be able to fit under your sink if there isn't a lot of other stuff already there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, that's under the sink because it's a point-of-use device, meaning that at that one sink, when you want hot water, you don't have to wait too long for freshly heated water to push a few gallons of cool-off water through the pipes. Yeah, that part, yeah okay. That, that part's nice, but they tout that the EcoSmart brand is offering extra efficiency and claim to be, quote, a great value to residential homes, end quote. Let's look at that value. Okay. The Ecos 12 itself sells for about $260 on Amazon. Okay. It, it uses 12,000 watts of electricity. What? 12,000 watts? Okay. That means it needs a 220-volt power feed that can handle 54 amps. 54 amps in your bathroom. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm envisioning bringing in, I, I don't even know how I would handle that. I guess that's an electrician, well, isn't relax. it? relax. I'm going there. Yeah, go ahead. That's All right. Smart. All right. Sorry. For that much current, you have to use 8-gauge three-conductor cable. Home Depot has a 50-foot spool of 8.3 Romex for 289 more than the heater costs, but we're far from done. Yeah. Figure Figure twenty bucks for a fifty amp double pole circuit breaker, and four hundred to six hundred bucks for an electrician to add that to your power distribution box, oh. run the wire to under the sink, and mount the hot water heater. That's scary. Figure two hundred to three hundred bucks for the plumber to connect it up. Mm-hmm. Hundred dollars into this before you get your first ounce of hot water. You broke now, up. We, you broke up right there. How many dollars? 
twelve to fifteen hundred dollars oh, before man. you get your okay. first ounce right. of hot water. Wow. Recent data on electric power rates puts the U.S. average at more than fifteen cents per kilowatt hour. So, for twelve thousand watts, that's if we watch ourselves, and my wife and I spend no more than 20 minutes a day rinsing or washing or drawing hot cooking water, that's 60 cents a day, almost $20 a month, about $220 per year. So with the Ecos 12, your first year of this, quote, great value, end quote, is 1400 to $1,700. You don't have to be a devout cheapskate to not want to spend that. Uh, yeah, now, I, I'm not I, I, reviewing it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not reviewing the Ecos 12 because, frankly, I can't afford to. You can't afford to install it, even if they send you the unit free. Yeah, I, I get it. Or run it. Oh, or, yeah. <laughs> I just, wow, that, that amazes me. I, 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 I'm dumbfounded. So, well, so, so where, where, where would anybody use this? I mean, maybe point, a, a point commercial. Of use it goes, where, where you need hot water and you need it right now. Commercial kitchen, maybe? No, uh, no, not enough capacity. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess. But it, wh what would be the end use case for this? Where, where would anybody really desire to spend this kind of money to put water in hot water? My nominee is nowhere. Bill Gates. Bill Gates wants to have that that instant on. Yeah. You know, if your if your electric meter makes a funny noise when it spins extra fast, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's going to take off. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what else do you have for us this week? I've got the Basius. Now it's spelled like base us, but that's the way they pronounce it. the Basius. They runs with they see us CO two universal car mount for handsets. But that's the first correction we must make. It's good for iPhone models and variations from X through 14. But even with its attachable metal ring, it's about as likely to hold my Google Pixel 6 Pro as I am to beat Thor in a cage match. Oh, <laughs> that's it's got a good. broad metal strap, a big adhesive mounted hook and loop strip. Dare I say Velcro on one end and a magnetic disc on the other. The strap itself, they call it memory metal, well, it's aluminum, holds the bend you shape it to. So with that strap Velcro attached somewhere on your car's dash or console, you bend the strap to position the handset to where you want it. And it's magnet, it magnet disc, well, theoretically, not, not for my phone, uh, holds your phone. The Basius CO2 handset car mount, about 30 bucks online. You've you've had some struggles with some of these car mounts. You you keep running across some of the worst ones. I just am lucky that way, but I've just requested some probably around Christmas time coverage that I think are going to do better. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I, so I don't mount my phone. I, oh. I, 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 well, okay. So, so I said it. I, I said it. You put it I, in the cup holder, I, I, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I've got a little tray area for it, and I just shove it in the tray, and and that just works. I mean, how, I don't. How, how much I, time do we have? Uh, about 40, uh, 20 seconds. I'm going to mention that I've got solutions coming up for keeping the cord out of the way, making the phone work without plugging in in many cases, or charging it without a cord. Okay. All right. That's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. All right. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty.
Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, August the 24th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and their website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, September the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, September the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, September the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.